0: Hello, my friends and I do mean friends. The more I've been able to read your comments, whether on YouTube or on Facebook, the more I've been able to learn from your insights and answer your questions, just the back and forth and starting to recognize names and it just feels like I'm getting to know my class which has been a blessing for me as a teacher. One of the downfalls of this kind of online teaching is not being able to see your students, not being able to get to know them one by one and so I'm grateful that we've been able to get to know each other a little bit through the comment section and through other means of communication. It's actually about friends that I want to start talking today because so many of you have stepped beyond simply the the student status to reach out and ask about my family when we've been going through some difficulties or to wish me well when we passed through COVID at the end of last year. It reminded me of that passage in Joseph Smith history that we studied a few weeks ago when in the midst of, in fact that's the phrase Joseph uses, in the midst of our afflictions we found a friend in a gentleman by the name of Martin Harris. And there's just something about that, that in the midst of hard times, his afflictions, Joseph found a friend, someone who supported him. And it really struck me this week, not just reflecting on your kindness during some of my family's times of affliction, but also in the desire that many of you have expressed to just contribute or help in any way that you can. Some very kind people out there have wanted to contribute, or a better term, to consecrate. To offer their assistance so that we could upgrade a microphone here or a camera there to pay for the podcast hosting platform or the subscription to the video editing software I'm just very grateful for the kindness of many of you just wanting to help in any way that you can and it reminded me of Martin here this help that he found in a friend and it reminded me also of something that we studied last week in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, remember when Joseph gets the plates back and the urim thummim and the permission to be able to recommence translating? And the Lord calms him down and reassures him. In fact, I love how he does that. We talked about it when we got to section 10 N- don't run faster than you have strength. But even that whole principle of don't go back and start over, just begin where you are right now and keep moving forward. I think that's a profound lesson on repentance and forgiveness. So often we think, well, I've got to go back and start over. And the Lord simply says, it's covered. It's taken care of. Start where you are and begin translating. Or in our case, begin again to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot change your past. I've redeemed it already. But you can change your future. So be diligent, as he says to Joseph Smith. But the phrase that struck me, based on the kindness of many of you, He said, don't run faster or labor more than you have strength and means. And it struck me that it's the Lord that's providing Joseph with the strength. But it was his friends that were providing him with the means. Oliver Cowdery comes and offers his assistance in acting as scribe, with his superior education and better spelling and penmanship. I can't translate. I tried and failed. Remember we saw that in section 9. But I can write for you. And so allow me to provide some means your assistance. We saw that with Martin Harris contributing $50 to help Joseph move his family so that he could continue the work of translation. And today we're going to meet in section 12 Joseph Knight Senior, another one of those faithful friends who offered means. I can't give you the gift and I can't give you the strength, but I can give you the means. And so he did. In fact, it was Joseph Knight Senior's horse and carriage that Joseph and Emma used when they went to the Hill Cumorah on that last trip there in 1827. When Joseph was immersed in the translation process with Oliver Cowdery's help, guess who came to the rescue with food and with paper to write on? Joseph Knight Sr. Joseph Smith said of him, He very kindly and considerately brought us a quantity of provisions in order that we might not be interrupted in the work of translation. It's hard to focus on God's work when you have to be doing your own work just to feed yourself. Or it's hard to write down a translation when you don't have any paper to write upon. And seeing those needs, Joseph Knight Sr. met them. This father of one of the first families of the Restoration. This incredible man, this disciple of Christ who remained faithful throughout his entire lifetime. And beyond that, more than just saying... Joseph, what can I do for you? Reminds me of how most people end their visiting or home teaching uh, visits. Is there anything I can do for you as we're walking out the door? Well, Joseph Knight Sr. not only asked it and not only provided it, but he went one above that and didn't just ask Joseph, what can I do for you? But he asked Joseph, could you ask God what I can do for him? And the Lord responded in section 12 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of repetition in these early revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. And next week, in our final example of that, we're going to talk about some of the principles we can learn from that idea of repeated revelation. But as we see in section 12, the first six verses here are the same six verses that started section 6 to Oliver Cowdery, section 11 to Hiram Smith, or section 14 to David Whitmer. Next week we'll see what else he said to David Whitmer, but there's something about these first six verses that was important enough to repeat them over and over to various of that first generation of church members. In fact, it's important enough for the rest of us to be reading it even to this day. In chapter 12, verse one, the Lord speaks to Joseph Knight Sr. and says, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Sounds a lot like what he said in section four to Joseph Smith Sr. But notice he added a word, the word great now in 1828 that wonderful Webster's Dictionary we learn what he meant by great you see for us a lot of times when we think of oh that's great it's like it's wonderful it's excellent it's awesome and that's that was a definition back then as well but it was one of the later definitions in that time period to talk about something being great was was less a matter of its superiority and more a matter of its size and its scope and when you're a couple of farmers out on the frontier Again, the church hasn't even been organized yet. But to talk about this work, well, what are we trying to accomplish here? Oh, something great. Something far beyond the size and scope of what you're probably envisioning right now. We already saw in some previous revelations that this gospel was meant for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And they were ushering in the dispensation of the fullness of times. So whether in space or in time, this is a great work. In fact, at the end of the verse, it is unto the children of men. Can you think of anybody that doesn't fit under that category? It Reminds me of what Elder Neal A. Maxwell said about the ministry of Jesus Christ. It neither began in Bethlehem, nor was completed on Calvary. It's so far beyond that myopic view, and the same would be important for these early disciples to understand. This was so much more than a hardy handful of disciples in Palmyra, or in Harmony, or in Fayette. This work is going to be great. In fact, it's going to be great and marvelous. That same dictionary defined marvelous as wonderful and strange. That adjective probably fits us in more ways than we want to admit. But exciting, wonder and surprise. Something that exceeds natural power. This is beyond anything that you, we mortal men, are going to be able to accomplish on your own. The work is great. The work is marvelous. And the work is work. It's going to require all that you have, all your heart, might, mind, and strength. It will be labor. It will be exertion. We are trying to fortify faith upon the earth. But faith without works is dead. And to fortify that faith will require all the work that you can offer. Now in verse 2, he begins, Behold, I am God, which he's done repeatedly through these early revelations as well. Thou art Joseph, and I am Jesus or thou art Martin, or thou art Oliver, and I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Reminds me of what he says to Nephi, son of Helaman, when he gives him the sealing power, that thou art Nephi, but I am God. Keep that straight. As I call you to this great and marvelous work, I am God. Please remember whose work it is, and who you're working for. That should both inspire us, knowing that this is God's work, and it's deserving of all that we have to offer, but it should also calm and comfort us, knowing that it is His work and He will make sure that it is accomplished. My work shall go forth, He's already told them. And then what does He say? After establishing that there is work to be done, verse 1, and that it is God's work, beginning of verse 2, He says to them, Give heed to my word. This work is going to involve God's word. It's like He said at the beginning of John, In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This work of helping people become like God will require the Word at work in all of them. And so how does he describe his Word? I hope you've sensed so far that in almost every revelation we've seen so far, it it revolves around the Word of God. Hearken, he says in section 1. Section 3 and section 10, how are we going to get this Word out when we've lost 116 pages? 4 and 6 and 11 and 12. All these same phrases, you've got to begin with my word. And then he begins to describe it in beautiful terms. Give heed to my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow. Therefore, give heed unto my word. See how he bookended that verse? At the beginning, give heed unto my word, and at the end, therefore, give heed unto my word. So what he's saying in the middle, it's, it's like to reiterate and to emphasize. Do you understand why my word is so important? Why you absolutely have to give heed to it? Because of the way he describes it in the middle. It's quick and powerful. Now first think about the, the difference between those two terms. When it comes to quick, we often think of speed and agility. We're going to expand upon that in just a moment. But if you think about quick and powerful, often those two terms are kind of at odds with one another. Think about sports, for example. In football, athletes seem to be either quick and they become running backs or wide receivers or defensive backs or they're powerful and they become linemen or defensive ends. Or in basketball, if you're quick, you're probably going to be a guard. If you're powerful, you're probably a center or a power forward. It's really hard to be both at the same time. And those who are both quick and powerful become unstoppable forces. Well, the word is going to be an unstoppable force as well. But again, that's more of the modern definition of quick. In the 1820s and earlier, quick was used to mean living or lively. That liveliness is probably where we get kind of this idea of speed and agility. But in the New Testament, when it speaks of Jesus being the judge of both quick and dead, when I was younger, I I used to wonder about that. I'm like, what, he judges the quick and the dead? So if you're slow, you're off the hook? No, he judges the living and the dead. The Word of God is alive, and it's powerful. Power suggests, I don't know, this, this depth to it, this, this substance, this stability, and quickness, the, the living aspect. It reminds me of section one, when the church is described as the true and living church. Well, true and living, quick and powerful, it has both the strength, its power, and the adaptability, the quickness, to be able to meet all of our needs, both firm and flexible. That's the Word of God. He calls it sharper than a two-edged sword. In the armor of God, that's the sword. The sword—the only offensive weapon that we get is representative of the Spirit and the Word. In fact, those two come together in Scripture so powerfully. Or if we use the phrases that are here, quick and powerful seems to suggest the Spirit and the Word as well. The word tends to be is set, it's canonized, it's unchanging. And the spirit is flexible, it's alive, it's quick, it's adaptable to every circumstance. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts in either direction. That same idea appears in both the Old and New Testament, and in the Hebrew and in the Greek. The term used for two-edged is actually more exactly translated as two-mouthed that it consumes anything it cuts through. And to think of the Word of God emerging from the mouth of God, a two-mouthed, two-edged sword. Interesting play on words. If you wrestle a little bit more with this idea of two edges, whether I cut to the left or cut to the right, this sword will pierce. And the Word of God does indeed cut both ways. It can both punish and preserve. It can condemn and protect. It's a lot like the judge's gavel, that depending on whether it's innocent or guilty, when he hammers that thing, it's cutting in one direction or the other, and it can cut in both. There's a beautiful verse in 1 Nephi 14, 7, where Nephi says, For the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other. You sense it cutting both ways? either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds. And the Word of God really does separate things like that. I mean, on the one hand, the Word of God is meant to unite us, right? The unity of the faith. But in doing so, it cuts to the quick in terms of truth and error. And whether we accept it or reject it, we are allowing it to divide us, sheep from goats, light from darkness, There's nothing quite like the Word of God to force a decision upon us to clarify things so that they're much more black and white than previously. And we're left in the middle with a decision to make. Now, some of those decisions are very difficult. Sometimes those black and whites seem a lot more like shades of gray, with very little difference from one shade to the other. That's why I love when he says that it will divide asunder both joint and marrow. Now, that might be connecting it to the previous phrases, If you think of joints being that flexible part of us, there's the quickness. And the marrow being the source of our strength, there's the power. But even to separate the two, to to pull apart joint and marrow, the sword can go right through it. Nothing cuts to the chase quite like Scripture and the words of living prophets. It cuts through cultures and time periods. It cuts through our excuses and our rationalizations. It cuts through our doubts and our fears. And it helps us keep the covenants that we have cut with God. That's the verb that the ancient Israelites would have used. Like when we talk about cutting a deal. Well, they cut a covenant. And that covenant comes through the Word of God. No wonder in the book of Revelation, when John sees in vision the Lord, the symbolic vision, he sees a sword coming out of his mouth. The sword, the Word, what better image to recognize the Word of God than having this sword come out of his mouth. Now in many ways this verse, verse 2, is an echo of something that Paul taught in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. You'll hear a lot of the similarity, but pay attention to the difference. He said, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, again, so much of that is parallel, but you catch the added phrases. It's not just dividing joints and marrow, flexibility from fixity. It divides soul and spirit. Now, if we take the soul's definition as the combination of body and spirit, or even as it's often used in a more general term that soul means spirit, then it's like, well, wait, you, this, this sword is so sharp it can cut between soul and spirit? Those are practically synonymous. Aren't they the same thing? Well, that's the beauty of God's Spirit and His Word. It allows us to distinguish the tiniest differences. It helps us recognize nuance, slight shifts of meaning. It helps us go beyond surface level similarities. No wonder he finished that verse with this idea of it helping you discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If you've ever seen a set of twins that are identical, but have learned to be able to discern between the two. When I first met my good bishop's twin sons, I had to pay attention to the hairstyling. One parted on the left and the other on the right, and I memorized. If they ever go bald later in life, I'm, I'm toast. But to be able to see similarities, things that almost appear identical on the outside, but to be able to dig deeper into the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word allows us to recognize those things. If soul and spirit are practically synonymous, and yet the spirit and word of God help us cut between them, do you get a sense of just how precise God's understanding of things can be? That there's a a level of precision in God's ability to discern where we are and where we're going. That if we're in tune with the spirit, that side of the sword, and study God's word, the other side of the sword, God can help us see exactly the places where we need to change. My brother is a pediatric neuroradiologist. He studies baby brains. And he's told me that sometimes when he's in surgery, and, and the, sur- the neurosurgeon is at work in the brain with these instruments and so on, but he's kind of behind the screen constantly looking at images to see how deep is the incision going. Where precisely are you in the brain as the, sur- as the neurosurgeon is at work? Because a few millimeters to the left or the right, and there went the patient's vision or their hearing. Talk about a need for precision. And so God's Word and His Spirit, that sword, two-edged, sharp enough to, to discern between joints and marrow, or even between soul and spirit. If you want to know precisely, where improvements or changes need to be made in your life. We need to allow his word to perform the intricate operations within each of us that we need. Therefore, give heed unto my word. Now in verse 3, Behold, the field is white already to harvest. Just like he said in section 4 to Father Smith. Therefore, whoso desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with his might and reap while the day lasts that he may treasure up for his soul everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God. Now that idea of reaping didn't appear in section 4. The thrust in your sickle was still there. But there seems to be more of an emphasis now, a few revelations later, on a harvest. The the field is white already. It's time to begin this harvest. And so we need to be reaping. And not only does he emphasize that reaping work, but he gives us a timetable, a deadline of sorts, when he says that we need to reap while the day lasts. I mean, on the one hand, you get this, it's about to come forth, or what we saw in section 11. Hiram, don't, you're not called till you're called. Obtain the word before you declare the word, and so on. Wait for my rock and my word and my doctrine to come forth. But there is this sense of a time limit. You only have today to do it. That was the the sense that you get from Amulek's beautiful sermon in Alma 34. When he talks about the timetable, it's always in the singular, never in the plural. He says, now is the time, singular, and the day, singular, of your salvation. He says, this life, singular, is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. No wonder Amulek pleads with them, Do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, the only one we get, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. Jesus himself taught something similar. When he said, I must work the works of him that sent me. Again, that sense of labor, of exertion. I've got a work to do. And I've got to work that work. While it is day, he said. Why? Because the night cometh when no man can work. I don't know if you've ever had a job that requires sunlight to do it. Reaping and harvesting seems to be one of them. I remember as I was preparing for my mission and trying to earn some money, I worked for a chain link fence company. And we'd go around to construction sites and to concert venues and things and put up temporary chain link fence and then take it down when it was over. And I remember once Lollapalooza was going to have their massive week-long concert in Los Angeles. And they hired us to be able to put a chain link fence up. But this was no normal chain link fence job. Lollapalooza was going to be held at this reservoir. And they wanted to fence off the water to keep people safe. And it was going to require a mile and a half of chain link fencing which was more than the company owned at the time we only had a short couple of days to be able to put all this up and when we knew it was our last day we also knew there was no way we were gonna get it all done it was all hands on deck and we worked from sun up until sundown and beyond because we still weren't done we had to drive the truck up onto the onto the grass and turn on the headlights and just keep putting up chain link fence I think it ended up being like a 27-hour workday. Some serious overtime. But without the headlights of the truck, there's no way we would have been able to perform that labor when the night came. Certain jobs must be done in the light before night comes and envelops everything in darkness. You understand? We'll see this later when he speaks of of the restoration occurring in the 11th hour. That we don't have all the time in the world, that we need to be urgent, that we need to be quick and powerful, just like the word is. Lively, active, engaged. So work while the day lasts, while the sun is shining, and the light of the world is among us. And if we do, again, regardless of the actual harvest, We may treasure up for our souls everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God. We talked about that in section 4. Our actions are far more important than their reactions. Yes, we need to have hope in a harvest, and an eye to reap, and not just to sow. But regardless of how they respond to our message, whatever we end up with in the garner, our souls can be saved in the kingdom of God. Now in verse 4, there's an interesting comparison to what we saw in section 4 earlier. Back then, it said, if you have desires to serve, you're called to the work. Here, he says, whosoever will thrust in his sickle and reap, the same is called of God. So in both instances, it's this matter of, how do I get called? In the earlier section, it was, well, want to be, desire to serve. And here, it's actually do it, actually perform the service, thrust in your sickle and reap. We love that verse in section 58 about being anxiously engaged. But notice he didn't say anxious to be engaged. And sometimes we kind of stop there. Oh, I have these desires and we feel so good about the desire. But we don't translate the desire into actual action. I'm guilty of that sometimes. When I feel a prompting and I'm so excited that I got a prompting to do something, that the spirit was with me and I I feel filled by that. In fact, I feel so good about the inspiration that it almost feels like I've acted on it even when I haven't yet. In fact, another suggestion is, well, what if the desire is missing? Because that emotion can come and go at times, but we still need to thrust in our sickle. We still have work to do. So it's not just the wanting, it's the working. And it's even the working in the absence of the wanting. In verse 5, he repeats the way he ended section 4, Therefore, if you will ask of me, ye shall receive. If you will knock, it shall be opened unto you, which is an essential piece of reassurance, considering all that God is calling upon us to perform. All of this reminds me of one of my favorite passages from the New Testament, when Jesus has finished the Last Supper and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And these apostles that have been following him for the last three years, Jesus says something to them that kind of puts them in their place, but also points them forward. In fact, this is the verse that I usually point to when someone asks me, Why did you choose to become a religious educator? Well, as Jesus said to his apostles then, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. It's not like we're doing God a favor by enlisting in his work. He's doing us a favor by calling us to it. So I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. So there is that expectation of some kind of harvest. Again, you're only responsible for your actions, not their reactions. But he does have an eye to the harvest. In the scriptures, when a vineyard is planted, metaphorically, typically the Lord also mentions a wine press being constructed. So this is not a, a shade or an ornamental garden. This is a work garden. There's an expectation here. In fact, back to that verse in John 15, when he says, I've ordained you to bring forth fruit, he then adds... And that your fruit should remain. Oh boy. So, so the Lord wants staying power in our influence. Now if I'm one of those apostles on the way to Gethsemane, or any of us disciples on our way to Adam on Diamond, I'm feeling a little intimidated right now. I, I didn't call him. He called me. And he is a God of high expectations. He wants fruit. He wants the fruit to remain. He wants me to thrust in my sickle with my might. He wants me to reap while the day lasts well how does the Lord finish that verse in John 15 in the same way he continues this passage in section 12 to those apostles he says whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name he may give it you you see his mercy there his offer of grace I know what I'm asking for I realize that I am a God of great expectations but I am also the God of grace So if you need help, then ask for it. Anything you need, the Father will give it to you. Here, ask of me and you'll receive it. Knock, it'll be open to you. Like we saw in the allegory of the olive tree. The Lord of the vineyard is willing to work right alongside you. In fact, that's probably why he he raises the the bar so high. Because what's going to fill that gap? Only his all-sufficient grace. Remember, it's your everlasting salvation that he is trying to reap. No wonder he asks you to reap the souls of others and makes that job just hard enough that you realize you need his help. He's nurturing seeds in you even as you are feeling all this pressure to nurture the seeds in others. Now in verse 6, he continues this to Joseph Knight Sr. and to the rest of us. Now, as you have asked, remember, Joseph Knight Sr. had come to Joseph Smith, not just, what can I do for you, but what can I do for God? Well, since you asked, I'm answering. That's kind of the real intent phrase that Moroni uses. If you're going to ask, prepare to act on the answer. So, Joseph, now as you have asked, behold, I say unto you, here's the answer. What can you do? You can keep my commandments, and you can seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. I love the order there obedience needs to be your default. You need to train yourself to the point that you are ready to go and do whatever the Lord asks of you. It's the way Nephi was wired in First and Second Nephi. It's what you see in the stripling warriors, obeying every word of command with exactness. Why? Because I was raised by pacifists. I have no idea what to do with swords. So Helaman, you tell me what to do. My life depends on it. And I will obey to the T. Well, the same needs to be true of all of us. If this is a matter of life and death, and spiritually speaking it is, then I want to develop the discipline of a good soldier to establish obedience as my norm, even before I know what the specific command is going to be. Because it's after saying keep my commandments that the Lord then becomes more specific. Seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Now you see the two parts of that? There is this cause of Zion and it needs to be brought forth. Kind of the woman coax her out of the wilderness. Okay, Bring forth the cause of Zion. But once she has appeared, establish it. Firm foundation. Grounded, rooted, established, settled. Those great words that Paul uses. Can we establish permanently the cause of Zion so that anyone else who is called to the work Showing desire and a willingness to thrust in their sickle. The the work, the cause has been established. Engage yourself in it. And I love the phrase, the cause of Zion. We're not just establishing Zion, we're establishing its cause. What is Zion hoping to accomplish? What is its purpose in bringing its citizens back home to God? When a very young, a too young David goes to see his older brothers as they're off in war against the Philistines and sees them all trapped by their own fear of this giant across the valley. What's he say to to muster their courage and to prove his own? Is there not a cause? Don't we have a reason for fighting? A purpose in being here? Let the cause inspire you. It did for him. Or if you go to the war chapters in the Book of Mormon, Pay attention to the word cause. You'll see it all over the place in those chapters. The Nephites were inspired by a better cause. Or the Amalickiahites began to doubt the justice of their cause. Or Amoron knowing that it wasn't a just cause to continue his brother's warfare. The Nephites speaking of the cause of liberty, the cause of freedom, the cause of their country, and ultimately what is repeatedly called the cause of God. I love when Captain Moroni is praying, and he prays specifically for the success of the cause of Christians. As it says near the end of those war chapters, they fought for the cause of their Redeemer and their God. If our might ever begins to diminish, if our strength flags, if we're not quite as quick as we once were, Then may the cause of Zion inspire us, that we might reap while the day lasts. Now once you've internalized those first six verses, the same ideas taught to Oliver Cowdery in section 6, and Hiram Smith in section 11, and Joseph Knight Sr. in section 12, and David Whitmer in section 14. And if you want to include section 4 with Joseph Smith Sr., there's a lot of similarity there too. Well, no wonder he says in verse 7, Behold, I speak unto you and also to all those who have desires to bring forth and establish this work. Like I said, we're going to talk about this more next week. But there is a certain kind of common marching order for everyone engaged in God's work. He'll use a similar phrase repeatedly throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. What I say unto you, I say unto all. So anyone else that has desires, if you want to be engaged in God's work, to bring it forth, to establish it, then this revelation is not just for Joseph Knight Sr. It's yours as well. And so if verse 7 is throwing open the gates wide to everyone, verse 8 is closing them a bit more to say, well, there still are some qualifications here. Remember he does the same in section 4? If you want to come, great, you're called. But if you want to be qualified, then there's some Christ-like attributes that you need to develop. Same thing here. This call is to everyone who has desires, verse 7, but verse 8, no one can assist in this work except these qualifications are met. Number one, he shall be humble and full of love. There's a lot of similarities here to what we saw back in section four, but the importance at the very beginning to establish your humility and your love, that purifies your motives even before you head off into the field to begin labor. I have an eye single to the glory of God. This is about his glory, not mine. So my humility is there. And why am I doing it? Not for love of praise or love of money, not for love of self, but for love of God, first great commandment, and love of neighbor, second great commandment. I love that the Lord is purifying their motives from the very beginning. There's a fascinating passage that's really important to me since I'm a professional religious educator. As Latter-day Saints, we don't do a professional clergy, and I'm so grateful for that. But there are certain elements within the church that there is a professional arm, and education is one of them. And I, am for one, i am grateful for that as well. But there is an occupational hazard, and that is priestcraft. And Nephi warned about that clearly in 2 Nephi 26. He said, God commanded that there shall be no priestcrafts. And then he defines that. It's not the priest side that's bad, but it's the craft side that's bad. It's the craftiness that can sometimes emerge from it. When it turns from something that is meant to to provide you with life, instead to becoming something that promotes a certain lifestyle. So here's Nephi's definition. For behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. So, so excellent definition there. It's not just that they're preaching. We all should be doing that. But it's that they're setting themselves up for a light to the world instead of holding up the light of the world himself. And again, there's there's a motivation factor here. Why are you doing it? Are you trying to stand in the spotlight? Or are you trying to shine a spotlight on the Savior? In fact, no spotlight needed. He is the light of the world. But are you getting out of his way so that you can speak to him? Or are you the the museum tour guide that's standing in front of the exhibit as people are just trying to look around you to see what you're actually talking about? You see, if you're doing it to get gain and praise of the world, then your priesthood has turned into priestcraft. Your preaching has become self-promotion, and that's problematic. You're seeking something about yourself rather than seeking The cause of Zion. Isn't that what Nephi was talking about? The welfare of Zion. That's her cause. Then Nephi says this in the next passage. He's already described the problem. Now he's ready to offer the solution. And I'm so grateful for what he says here. He says, Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing. But he doesn't just offer a proscription. He offers a prescription. Not just a don't do this, but do this instead. This positive will will outweigh the negative, it will protect you against it. And here's the solution. Wherefore the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. Now he ends that passage with the caution that the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion. Right, we're here to, to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. That's what we're working for. Because if we labor for money, then we shall perish. That's Nephi's warning. But did you catch the Lord's solution in the middle? How does the Lord inoculate us against the dangers of priestcraft? He calls us into charity. He leads us into love. And so here, all you who want to assist in this work, make sure you're humble. Then setting yourself up as a light to the world won't be a temptation. And make sure you are full of love because then your motives will be facing outward instead of inward. Love of God and love of man love of God's cause, hope for the welfare of Zion. That keeps our motives pure. No wonder if we cannot establish humility and love as undergirding foundational attributes in our character. No wonder we cannot assist in God's work. We're not qualified for it. We're starting to use his work as if it were our own. He then adds those three cardinal Christian virtues that we must have faith, hope, and charity. If you missed the discussion of those three attributes, especially as charity compares to love, go back and rewatch section four, or even better, read the comments, because the things that you all taught about the differences between those two attributes, so much overlap. Maybe this is the, the word of God dividing asunder soul and spirit, joint and marrow, charity and love. You did an incredible job of that. You taught me beautiful things. Then he adds the other attribute that so often comes up, but so seldom is appreciated. Being temperate in all things. That was part of the Section 4 list of growing up in God. That was one of the things that, that Shiblon needed to, to temper his zeal and his passion, according to Alma 38, to be temperate. As a Southern California native, I'm grateful for temperate climates. Sometimes friends will ask me, What's your favorite season? You like summer, winter, fall, spring? And I always say, San Diego. My favorite season is San Diego. Why? Because it's temperate year-round. People say, ah, but there's no change. And I'm like, well, yeah, why change from perfection? It's like, no, they only have one season. I'm like, yeah, but they picked the right one. It's steady. It doesn't fluctuate. It's not these high highs and low lows. It's not a roller coaster. You are temperate in all things. You have reached the Goldilocks zone that we've talked about. You've figured out how to prove contraries. So that if someone is too far in this extreme, you can bring them into the middle, but you can do the same thing for people on the opposite extreme. If we want to engage in the work of God, we need to understand the spectrum and help lead people into the celestial center of the straight and narrow way. If we are extremists in one side or the other, then we'll either be creating fanatics within our own echo chamber, or we'll be offending and alienating those who have the opposite extreme within them. Our temperance, honestly, the more I think about it and and wrestle with this, I think this underappreciated attribute of temperance is one of the most important things we can develop. No wonder we're called to be temperate in all things. Aim for San Diego temperatures here. And then he concludes verse 8. Temperate in all things, whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. That is a a helpful, I don't know, caution or consolation there. Whatsoever I entrust to you, and I may entrust this or that. I may entrust something different to someone else. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. As I said back in verse 2, I am God, okay? It's my work. And sometimes I transfer you to different parts of the vineyard. Sometimes I give you lots of responsibility, and other times I let you rest a while. Sometimes you get five talents, or sometimes two, sometimes one. But do something with them. However much you are given. Thrust in your sickle with your might, even if your plot in the farm is a small one. And then to confirm it all, verse 9, he reiterates the source of these words. Just as he did back in verse 2. Verse 2, I am God. Verse 9, I am the light and the life of the world that speak these words. Therefore, give heed with your might. And then you are called amen i'm the light you can labor while the day lasts because i'm providing the light of this day i'm the life you can thrust in your sickle with your might because i've offered you that might you can be as quick and lively as the word itself because i'm the source of those lively words i've spoken them to you please give heed and give heed with your might Three times in this short revelation, he's told us to give heed to his words. And this third time, he asks us to do it mightily. Remember heart, might, mind, and strength? The might referred to our resources, our influence. So as we are giving heed to God's word, consecrate whatever you can. Joseph Knight Sr. was so good at that already. He did use his resources. He provided means. He offered his influence. All as a way of giving heed to God's word with his might. No wonder he was called. And would remain called and qualified throughout a long life of diligent and dedicated discipleship. I love the Knight family. Now from section 12, we need to go back in Joseph Smith history to catch the very tail end of the experiences that are recorded here. We've studied it already with the first vision as the first part and the coming of the angel Moroni and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in the second part. The third part has to do with the restoration of the priesthood. And I think it beautifully grows out of what we just studied in section 12 as section 12 shifts to section 13, which are the words of John the Baptist when he restored this priesthood. Now we pick up the story in verse 66. It's April 5th, 1829. Joseph Smith up to this point has never met Oliver Cowdery. Oliver knows the Smith family. He's been up in Palmyra boarding with them as he's been teaching school. And from them, he's heard the story of Joseph. But Joseph is down in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Remember, this is section six. Oliver prays about things. He, he spe- peace is spoken to his mind. He ends up going down to Harmony to, see, to meet Joseph, to find out some more things for himself. And it doesn't take long to be fully convinced, especially with the help of section six, wow, this is a prophet of God. And I want to provide whatever means I can to be of assistance. Now that sums up verse 66. And then in 67, it's two days later, April 7th now. And so Joseph recommences translating and Oliver begins to write for him. I can't give you gift or strength, but I can give you means. And so he does. Now in verse 68, we still continued the work of translation. Good things happen when we are engaged in the work. And as they are so engaged, in the ensuing month, May 1829, we on a certain day went into the woods to pray and inquire of the Lord, respecting baptism for the remission of sins that we found mentioned in the translation of the plates. I'm amazed at how well the human brain can go on autopilot, especially when it comes to clerical kinds of things. I read a ton, and I mark important things in everything that I read, but to make them more permanent and portable and, and searchable and accessible, I then transcribe all of those notes into some information management software it takes a ton of typing I I keep telling my daughter who hates her typing class this might be the most important skill you ever ever develop but for me somehow my mind can be doing other things I can be listening to a podcast or something else while my eye and my finger is engaged in this and my brain is somewhere else now we saw back in section 8 that revelation was to the mind and heart. In section nine, you have to study it out. This is gonna take some work. So the work of translation for Joseph and Oliver were far from mere clerical mindlessness. They were engaged in this. But they were more than just engaged in the work of translation, they were engaged in the work of comprehension. They wanted to understand and learn from what they were doing. If scripture study to us is just a checking of the box and getting through the material, we are missing out and if Joseph and Oliver can can ponder things like baptism for the remission of sins to the point that they want to inquire of the Lord and and understand it better if they can do that while they're translating Scripture then certainly we can afford to to pause our reading of Scripture to be able to do that kind of inquiring ourselves You understand what I'm trying to say here it's amazing that there they are engaged in the work of translation laborious mental exertion exercising faith studying it out in their mind but when they get to this part about baptism for the remission of sins they stop what they're doing they turn aside to see like we talked about with Moses in the burning bush or remember Joseph that night with the angel Moroni he marvels he meditates he muses he ponders he's a thinker he's not just trying to get through the material and then move on with his day I want to understand this. So in his scripture study, if we want to call it that, he finds something he doesn't fully understand, and he stops what he's doing. It's not about getting to the end of the chapter. I want to understand the Word of God. So, Oliver, let's go out into the woods. I've had some amazing experiences there. And let's inquire of the Lord. It's not completion, it's comprehension I'm after. Now at the very end of Joseph's Smith's history, our last page, you see an extended footnote from Oliver Cowdery. It comes from an article that he wrote for the messenger and advocate in 1834. And it describes these same events in much more flowery language, I should add. Oliver Cowdery was much better educated than Joseph was. Rhetorically speaking, you can sense that Oliver is, is a master of alliteration. Some beautiful turns of phrase. And I love the way that he describes His and Joseph's decision to pause the work of translation and go to ask God about this. This is the third paragraph down. And he says, No men in their sober senses, so if you're taking something seriously, could translate and write the directions given to the Nephites from the mouth of the Savior of the precise manner in which men should build up his church. So this is third Nephi they're translating. No one could do that if they're taking it seriously without desiring a privilege of showing the willingness of the heart by being buried in the liquid grave to answer a good conscience by the resurrection of jesus christ now that's just a very poetic way of saying to get baptized in other words if you're taking scripture seriously and you're studying that jesus himself is teaching his disciples about the importance of baptism then how could you not want to be baptized yourself? If Jesus is teaching about repentance, how could you not repent? If you are studying scripture about any topic and taking it seriously, then shouldn't your reading turn into working? Shouldn't study? Seek some kind of of application. It's like King Benjamin. If you believe these things, see that you do them. Well, here's Joseph and Oliver studying the Book of Mormon, translating it. And learning about Jesus, teaching about the importance of baptism, I love Oliver's response. How could we not want to be baptized ourselves in the way that Jesus taught? Now, he doesn't stop there. He goes on in this passage, on reflecting further. So they're pondering, they're reflecting, they're thinking about this. It was as easy to be seen that amid the great strife and noise concerning religion, none had authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel. This is similar to what Joseph Smith himself learned in the first vision. And so Oliver says recognizing that, realizing that the woman was in the wilderness and it was only now being coaxed out, we only waited for the commandment to be given arise and be baptized. And this was not long desired before it was realized. I love this. They are working, and as a result, they begin wanting. They are learning, and thus want to begin living. I'm studying baptism. I want to be baptized, but where's the authority? And as they're thinking this through, they go out into the woods and they pray. Go back to the way Joseph described it, while we were thus employed, talk about being engaged in something active, in working. He says they were praying and calling upon the Lord. Do we consider that employment? Are we anxiously engaged in our prayers, or are prayers just something that we say? Now, this was mental exertion, which is the exercise of faith. And as they pray in that way, a messenger from heaven descends in a cloud of light. He lays his hands upon them, and he ordains them, saying, and then we hear this this prayer of ordination from a heavenly messenger that a few verses later will be introduced to us as John the Baptist. Who better to answer their questions about baptism than the Baptist himself? And not only that, but as this kind of last in the line of Aaronic priesthood holders, this son of Zechariah himself, for him to, to reforge the broken link, but the language here is beautiful. You can study it either here in Joseph Smith History, verse 69, or back in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 13. Same language. And I love the way it begins. Upon you, my fellow servants. What a beautifully inclusive phrase. To hear from this heavenly messenger that they are fellow servants. That we are engaged in this work together. I wonder if John the Baptist conveyed that because he had felt it so beautifully from Jesus himself. I've always loved the way that Jesus invites John to baptize him. When John is overwhelmed by this responsibility and says, You should be baptizing me. I've already told them that that I'm here to baptize with water, but someone else is coming after to baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost. Someone whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to tie. And the Lord's reassurance, he says, John, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And that inclusive plural pronoun is one of the most merciful ways. I love the way he said it. It's not like, John, come on, I need to get baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and I can't exactly do it to myself. So, a little help here? No, it's John, you and, you and I, we are going to do something amazing. It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Will you help me in this work? Will you be my fellow servant? I love that John, having been included in, In Jesus's work is now including Joseph and Oliver in his including all of us the Lord can do this work so much better on his own but he's willing to condescend and speak to us in plural pronouns Jared how about you and I go do some work in Puerto Rico how about you and I serve together in this calling why don't we fulfill all righteousness together John Joseph Oliver fellow servants all and he's doing this in the name of Messiah now everything we do we are supposed to do in the name of Jesus Christ now Christ is not Jesus last name it's simply the Greek word Christos which means anointed one now rewind and Christos in Greek becomes Mashiach in Hebrew again meaning the anointed one Now, I love this for a modern English speaker we would perform this in the name of Jesus Christ But for an ancient Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jew, performing this work in the name of Messiah sounds beautifully appropriate. And what is he doing in the Messiah's name? Conferring the priesthood of Aaron. Now Joseph and Oliver will learn so much more about this as time goes on. And we'll get additional information in section 20, and section 84, and section 107. When it comes to understanding priesthood, it is such a line upon line, precept upon precept kind of growth in God. Joseph did not emerge from the Sacred Grove or from the Susquehanna River with a copy of the Church Handbook of Instructions. He understood in part, but he was still seen through a glass darkly here. And priesthood purposes and procedures and quorums and offices and everything else was still yet to come. But here, as part of Joseph's preparation he is receiving the preparatory priesthood. I think this would have been particularly interesting for Oliver Cowdery. Remember from section 8, that this gift of Aaron that was described? I don't know exactly when it's dawning on Oliver or on Joseph or on others that his gift really does constitute the gift of Aaron. But to have the priesthood of Aaron here must have been incredibly meaningful for him as well. Now, as it's described here by John, what does the priesthood of Aaron hold? He lists... The keys of the ministering of angels, and of the gospel of repentance, and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Now think about those three. The one that often jumps off the page and captures our attention is the first, the ministering of angels. We often wonder, what exactly does that mean? Now there can be literal ministering of angels. We see that happening right here. We see that in the Book of Mormon and elsewhere. But I really love what Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught about this principle. What is the ministry of angels, he asked. As a youth, he said, I only pictured the the literal, the the tangible, the visible. But he admitted, when I was 12 years old, I didn't picture an angel coming to visit me. And the more he wrestled with this, he began to understand that the ministry of angels can go far beyond the visible. He taught that angelic messages can be delivered by a voice or merely by thoughts or feelings communicated to the mind. He quoted President John Taylor, who described the action of the angels or messengers of God upon our minds so that the heart can conceive revelations from the eternal world. Doesn't that tie in beautifully with section 8? If revelation is God speaking to the mind and heart, then the ministering of angels can also be heavenly messengers speaking to our minds so that our heart can conceive revelation. Same target body parts both times. So Elder Oaks concludes that most angelic communications are felt or heard rather than seen. He then answers the question, how does the Aaronic Priesthood hold the keys of the ministering of angels? Well, in the same way that it holds the keys of preparing people to receive the influence of the Holy Ghost. He taught in general the blessings of spiritual companionship and communication are only available to those who are clean. As explained earlier, through the Aaronic Priesthood ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, we are cleansed of our sins and promise that if we keep our covenants, we will always have his spirit to be with us. I believe that promise not only refers to the Holy Ghost, but also to the ministering of angels. For angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. That's, those are Nephi's words. So it is that those who hold the Aaronic Priesthood open the door for all church members, who worthily partake of the sacrament to enjoy the companionship of the Spirit of the Lord and the ministering of angels. So you see what he's saying there? It also helps us see that it's not like, well, this one's off on its own, the ministering of angels, and then let's get back to the normal stuff and talk about repentance and baptism by immersion. No, it, it's all part of the same aronic keys. Because if the ministering of angels, speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, requires our cleanliness, then no wonder repentance and baptism are part of those Aaronic keys and those Aaronic ordinances. In fact, I love how all three of them come together under the umbrella category of preparation. You see, we'll see this most clearly taught in section 84, months from now. But there he talks about the Aaronic versus the Melchizedek and describes it as angels versus God. When Moses comes down the mountain the first time with the Ten Commandments and realizes that they're in no way prepared for it, they're doing golden calf stuff instead, he breaks them and then goes back up and gets a second copy, but it's uh, it's a step removed from the first. The first was Melchizedek. The second was Aaronic. First was Temple. Second was Tabernacle. First was God. Second was angels. God would no longer lead them through the wilderness. He would send angels to do that work instead. See this? Aaronic would help prepare them for the Melchizedek. God was eternal. He could wait. So for the next millennium or so, work on preparing yourself then to enter into the rest of God. Like I said, we'll talk about that more in section 84. But there is something else worth seeing there because it's there that we get the word preparatory when it comes to Aaronic priesthood. But here's the catch. I love this difference here. If you were to ask somebody use preparatory and ironic and priesthood in a sentence, they would always well typically say, "Well, the ironic priesthood is the preparatory priesthood." And then you ask them, "Well, what's it preparing you for?" And typically they'll say, "Well, the ironic, especially if it's a young man, the ironic priesthood is meant to prepare me for the Melchizedek priesthood." Now, years ago in seminary, I was teaching the doctrine and covenants, and I asked that question of the class. In what way is the ironic priesthood the preparatory priesthood? And this one guy, I loved this kid. He was awesome. He raised his hand and said, well, yeah, it prepares us for the Melchizedek priesthood. And I was, I was glad that he answered the question because we had a fun relationship and I could kind of razz him and he'd razz me back. And for some reason, my mind just went down this other path I hadn't planned on. And I said to him, oh, so it's all about you, is it? Oh, I have the Aaronic Priesthood so that I can someday be ready to to be a, a worthy Melchizedek Priesthood holder. And I said to him, since when is the Priesthood about you at all? And he kind of stepped back and, and I kind of stepped back too, wondering where am I going with this? Because his answer was the same answer I always gave from deacon, teacher, priest on up. The Aaronic Priesthood prepares its holders to hold the Melchizedek Priesthood. But I was so glad that the Lord... the Spirit kind of hijacked the conversation. It led it into a far better direction than the one I was going to go down. Because as we both kind of paused and and chewed on that for a minute, we realized that's not what the Lord meant by preparatory. Now, it can include that. I've, I've heard wise apostles and prophets describe the preparatory priesthood helping young men get up to speed. But there's so much more than that. And that's why I love section 84, verse 26. Because the word preparatory appears here, and, it ha- it is a- and it's talking about the ironic Priesthood, but it doesn't call it the preparatory priesthood. Instead it says this, section 84 verse 26, the lesser priesthood continued. So lesser, that's ironic. it continued even after Melchizedek Priesthood was taken, that golden calf experience cost them a lot. But then says this which priesthood holdeth the key of the ministering of angels we saw that from john the baptist's words and then this and the preparatory gospel so if we're talking church culture or church common knowledge then yeah ironic priesthood is the preparatory priesthood but if you're talking scripture revelation from heaven Aaronic priesthood holds the keys to the preparatory gospel in other words It's not that Aaronic Priesthood is preparing us for Melchizedek Priesthood. It's that Aaronic Ordinances are preparing us to receive Melchizedek Ordinances. There's a huge difference there. The first version, it's about the holder. It's preparing me. The second version, it's about the recipient of its service. And that's what Priesthood is always about. And so what are you receiving through the Aaronic Priesthood? The preparatory gospel. A gospel of preparation for what Melchizedek ordinances can then provide. And in its simplest form, what's the difference between the two? The preparatory gospel that the Aaronic priesthood administers is the gospel of repentance and of baptism. In a nutshell, it's the elimination of sin. Aaronic ordinances eliminate sin. That's what repentance is for. That's what baptism is for. Baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. That's what the sacrament, an ironic ordinance, is for. To renew our baptismal covenant so that we can be clean again. Worthy of the ministry of angels, like Elder Oaks described. I mean, think about it this way. When you've committed a major transgression and need to go confess, who do you see? Your bishop. Why him? Because he's the judge in Israel? Well, yes. But more importantly it's because your bishop is the president of the Aaronic priesthood in your ward. And presiding over the, or the priesthood that administers the preparatory gospel, it's up to him to help you eliminate sin. And once that's happened, now what are you prepared for? If the preparatory gospel have served, has served its purpose, you are now prepared for, to go from a gospel of preparation to a gospel of presentation. And what I mean by that is you are entering into the presence of the Lord. God is presenting himself to you. Now that sounds huge, and it is. But think about this in terms of Melchizedek Priesthood. Aaronic ordinances have eliminated sin. Melchizedek ordinances introduce you into the presence of God. That's why the first Melchizedek ordinance is the gift of the Holy Ghost, a member of the Godhead. Divinity is now with you. Or the temple with all of its Melchizedek ordinances entering into the presence of God. Remember back to Sinai. If Aaronic is angels, Melchizedek is God. If Aaronic is eliminating sin that's pulling out the weeds, Melchizedek then plants the flowers. Or Aaronic ordinances are for justification and Melchizedek ordinances are for sanctification. You catch the difference? And who was john the baptist a preparer of the way make straight in the desert a highway for our god so that jesus can come he is preparing the way for the introduction of jesus the son of god no wonder the sacrament ends this preparatory ordinance with the promise that we might always have god's spirit to be with us that's melchizedek ordinance i mean honestly I I wish our Aaronic Priesthood holders would fully understand this, that if they have done their job right, holding their keys and exercising them on behalf of the ward, once that last person has partaken of the bread and the water, there should be no sin in that ward. We've all renewed our covenants and been cleansed through Christ. And once that is in place, this preparatory gospel has prepared us for all that comes next in sermons and in service, in word and in work, the Holy Ghost can be with us. We can be brought into the presence of God. No wonder it was Moses, the embodiment of the law, along with his brother Aaron, the personification of Aaronic priesthood, that brought Israel through their wilderness to the Promised Land, but didn't get them into it. It it kind of weaned them off their wilderness experience. And who got them into the Promised Land? Joshua, a.k.a. Yehoshua, a.k.a. Yeshua, a.k.a. Jesus. If Moses and Aaron represent the law and the Aaronic preparatory gospel, Joshua represents Jesus, that Melchizedek embodiment that finally crosses the Jordan. Moses can get you up to it, but only Joshua can bring you into the promised land. We each have roles to play, Right? whatever is entrusted to our care. Well, Aaronic authority was being entrusted to Joseph and to Oliver. And from there, it would be entrusted to the rest of us. Not just those who hold its offices. Again, that's, that's secondary. But for all of us, male and female, who receive its preparatory ordinances. What's all that for? Notice how John the Baptist ends this ordination with the assurance that this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now first, that phrase, it shall never be taken again from the earth, suggests that it had been taken from the earth before. Again, this evidence of the woman going into the wilderness to be nourished. But the loss of institutional priesthood authority. And what a wonderful reassurance. It's never going to be lost again now i'm always fascinated that you hear this often that this is the one dispensation that's not going to end in apostasy and that phrase would back that up but i've also heard prophets and apostles warn that the church is never more than one generation away from apostasy so how are we raising our children if an entire generation just decided no i'm out then the church has fallen into apostasy and i wonder well how can those two be true it'll never fall into apostasy but we're never more than one generation away and What I love about putting the two together is the second, that the Church is never more than one generation away from apostasy, helps us understand that the first, the reassurance that that we'll never fall into apostasy again, is not some kind of divine fiat that removes our agency. Rather, it is a reminder that thanks to the righteous use of our agency, we will make sure that we are raising a generation of righteous sons and daughters, people who will will live into this preparatory gospel, be cleansed of their sins, so that they can bring God into the world, that they can prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Preparation leading to presentation. In fact, that last phrase about the sons of Levi offering again an offering in righteousness, that must have perked up Joseph Smith's ears. He would have remembered those phrases from a few years earlier when the angel Moroni repeatedly quoted Malachi chapter 3 to him that talks about the sons of Levi being purged and cleansed, refiner's fire, fuller's soap, elimination of sin, right? That's what Aaronic ordinances are always for. And once those sons of Levi have been purified and purged, what can they do then? Offer an offering in righteousness. Now, when we studied that in Moroni's visits a few weeks ago, we, we studied Malachi 3. And, and this language of the sons of Levi offering and offering, what's that all about? Now, in section 84, the oath and covenant of the priesthood, we just saw that in terms of preparatory gospel, lesser priesthood. But later on, when it describes those who are faithful unto the obtaining and magnifying their callings within these two priesthoods, become the sons of Moses and of Aaron. Well, what tribe were both Moses and Aaron from? Levi. In fact, when he talks about the sons of Levi, he says, whose sons are ye. That's section 84 as well. So by honoring the Aaronic priesthood, whether by holding it worthily ourselves or more encompassingly receiving its ordinances, the preparatory gospel, we become the sons and daughters of Levi, of Moses and Aaron. And what offering can we offer? If the sons of levi are explained in dnc 84 the offering in righteousness is described in dnc 128 where in the context of the work for the dead joseph writes that god shall purify the sons of levi and purge them as gold and silver there's malachi 3 again that they may offer unto the lord an offering in righteousness so we back on the same context let us therefore as a church and a people and as latter-day saints This is all of us now, male and female, Levi's daughters as well as Levi's sons. May we offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And what will it be? Let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. Now that work is going to require Melchizedek ordinances as well. We're introducing them back into the presence of God after all. But it all begins with this preparatory and purging work administered through the keys of the Aaronic Priesthood. Like I said, we will talk more about Aaronic Priesthood, offices and ordinances and so on as the Doctrine and Covenants progresses. We're already way ahead of where Joseph Smith is there on May 15th, 1829. Most of what I just explained to you would be way over Joseph's head in the moment because they haven't yet received section 20, or section 84, or section 107. The Church Handbook of Instructions is years and years away. But in this initial ordination, they are understanding the purposes of this priesthood, and they're breathtaking. Now, there's a limit to them, and I love how he establishes that right from the beginning in verse 70. He said this Aaronic priesthood had not the power of laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, but that this should be conferred on us hereafter. So it's good to know what your authority encompasses, verse 69, but it's also important to know the limits of your authority, verse 70. You see this illustrated perfectly in Acts chapter 19, where Paul and Apollos are there in Corinth, teaching disciples that they've met, and they ask them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Now those disciples said unto them, well, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. So what are you talking about? And so Paul says to them, well, unto what then were ye baptized? And their answer, unto John's baptism, which would mean baptism for the remission of sins an ironic ordinance. We got the first half. I didn't know it was only half though. I thought that was the whole thing. No wonder Joseph would later say that if all you've got is the baptism of water without the baptism by fire and the Holy Ghost, it's only half a baptism. You might as well have immersed a bag of sand. But those disciples in Corinth, they thought that was it. They had lived up to the limits of whatever authority they had access to. No wonder Paul says to them, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's ironic keys. Saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. This is just preparation. John the Baptist was the fullback. Jesus was the tailback. John's just the lead blocker the preparer of the way. That's why John taught them to believe on him that should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, when those disciples heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Interesting, by the way, that there was a re-baptism in preparation for their initial confirmation. They'd already received the baptism of John, but here after having the, expl- gotten the whole explanation, they're baptized again and then confirmed to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That doesn't follow the normal pattern, but when things are beginning, sometimes things will go out of the norm before a norm is established. That's actually what's happening here, because we'll see in their ordination as well as in their immersion something a little different than what we do today. This is how it unfolds, middle of verse 70, he commanded us to go and be baptized and gave us directions that I should baptize Oliver Cowdery and that afterwards he should baptize me. Now some have wondered, why didn't John just baptize him himself? If he's a resurrected being here, he couldn't have been translated since we know about his death in the New Testament. But if he's resurrected by now, couldn't he have baptized them himself? And I suppose he could have, if that's the case. However, I love what Elder Maxwell once said, that in the economy of heaven, God seldom sends a prophet when a priest will do. So often, he expects us to do everything within our power, and he provides the things that are just beyond our power. I'll raise Lazarus from the dead, but you can move the stone away. You can unwrap him from the grave clothing. I'll multiply the loaves and the fishes, but you apostles can distribute them. I will connect the dispensations. I will confer the priesthood of Aaron. But once that's done, you now have the authority to baptize. That's part of your Aaronic keys. The baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. So go ahead and do that. And so they do. Now this is where it gets a little interesting. Out of the norm, like we saw in Acts 19. Verse 71, Accordingly we went and were baptized. I baptized him first, and afterwards he baptized me. And then the interesting part. After these baptisms, I laid my hands upon his head, and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood and afterwards he laid his hands on me and ordained me to the same priesthood for so we were commanded now that might strike us as odd since John the Baptist had just ordained them to the Aaronic priesthood himself so why a reordination maybe Joseph himself was even confused by it because he says at the end "It's almost like he's answering our question why would you do that I don't know so we were commanded it's like why rebaptize those disciples in Acts 19? Well, let's just do this, and that's what Paul decided, and then move forward into the confirmation for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Why reordain to the Aaronic priesthood? Some have suggested. Well, perhaps the first was just to confer Aaronic priesthood, and here it's to ordain to a specific office within it. Eh, maybe, but we don't really understand the offices at least until section 20, and that's almost a year away. President Hinckley himself suggested, well, perhaps it was simply a matter of establishing the norm. I mean, some of this is totally out of the norm, because we have to to reforge the links in the chain. Priesthood is passed down, okay? We'll see that clearly in section 84. But if the chain is broken... We have to do something out of the norm to reforge the links and thus the coming of john the baptist later thus the coming of peter james and john we'll talk about that when we get to section 27. but once the out of the norm has served its purpose let's get to the norm as quickly as we can and the norm is baptism first and priesthood ordination later we don't ordain people to the priesthood who haven't been baptized So let me give you authority. Then you may baptize one another. And then to almost reaffirm this. And to establish the precedent of mortals ordaining other mortals. Fellow servants all. Then go ahead and ordain one another to the Aaronic Priesthood. Again, that was President Hinckley's suggestion. There's a lot of possibilities out there. There's some ambiguity here. Some question marks. Which I'm totally okay with. Joseph himself is learning line here. Upon line later, with some wrestling and making sense of things in between. So here at least, in the absence of clear understanding, he was doing what he was commanded. Bring it up with John the Baptist, I guess. Now verse 72, here you see the clarification of his identity. The messenger who visited us on this occasion and conferred this priesthood upon us said that his name was John, the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament. Again, who better to restore the keys of this preparatory gospel than the preparer of the way of Christ himself? Who better to restore the keys of repentance than he who cried it on the banks of the Jordan River? And who better to restore the keys of baptism than the Baptist himself? But he also said that he acted under the direction, again, know the limits of your authority, of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which priesthood, he said, would in due time be conferred on us, and that I should be called the first elder of the church, and he, Oliver Cowdery the second. and it was on the 15th day of May, 1829, that we were ordained under the hand of this messenger and baptized. Again, we'll talk more about the restoration of the Melchizedek Priesthood in section 27, as well as some of its offices when we get to section 20. Here's one line. We'll hold off and get a few more lines later on. Now, verse 73 and 74, I love, because it describes these newly baptized church members, these newly ordained holders of the preparatory gospel. And you see the aftermath and the difference it made in them. I pray that our baptisms have wrought similar changes within each of us. They say, immediately on our coming up out of the water, after we had been baptized, we experienced great and glorious blessings from our Heavenly Father. Did you sense something similar when you came up from the waters of baptism? Great and glorious blessings? If not immediately, at least after the passage of time, did you recognize what had happened to you? I'm so grateful I still have my childhood journal written in a shaky eight-year-old hand as I described the warmth I felt after my own baptism. And great and glorious blessings have flowed into my life From that moment since joseph continues no sooner had i baptized oliver cowdery than the holy ghost fell upon him now this wouldn't be the gift of the holy ghost yet but the presence of the spirit the influence of the spirit you've been cleansed you're worthy of his presence and oliver stood up and prophesied many things which should shortly come to pass and again so soon as i had been baptized by him i also had the spirit of prophecy When standing up, I prophesied concerning the rise of this Church and many other things connected with the Church and this generation of the children of men. We were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. The book of Revelation defines the spirit of prophecy as the testimony of Jesus. To feel cleansed, to have your sins washed away. It's not the water that does it. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that does. We're covenanting with him. And as a result, he covenants to wash away our sins, to forgive us, to redeem us. Or if you want to take prophecy more literally, and it suggests that that's the case here, since he's speaking of the rise of the church and many other things connected with it. It reminds me of the change of heart, this mighty change that was wrought within the people of King Benjamin. Remember after they describe it, They say, and if it were necessary, we could prophesy of all things. Just this view of the future. Our past has been completely changed. I'm no longer fixated on looking backwards at the mistakes I've made. So now I can fully look forward with faith and prophesy of marvelous things to come. I pray that our baptism does that. I pray that our Aaronic ordinances do. Every time we partake of the sacrament and renew those ordinances, every Sunday can be an opportunity for us to experience great and glorious blessings. To see our future so much more clearly and prophesy of good things to come. To be filled with the Holy Ghost and to rejoice in the giver of all those gifts, the God of our salvation. 74 then brings us back to where this all started. Remember, what was it that took them out to the woods that day? Their translation of Scripture. And as soon as they had this incredible experience, they went straight back to the page where they left off. But notice in verse 74, Our minds being now enlightened, we began to have the Scriptures laid open to our understandings, and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages Revealed unto us in a manner which we never could attain to previously, nor ever before had thought of. That's my dream as far as scripture study is concerned. Can you imagine opening your scriptures to whoever you're studying and having your minds enlightened so that you see things you've never seen before? I think too often we think, well, the scriptures. I study my scriptures in order to bring the Spirit into my life. And that's wonderful. But can you imagine if the order were reversed? What if you went and sought the Spirit, that repentance and covenant keeping brought the Spirit into your life to a degree that it would sanctify your scripture study? You bring the Spirit to your scripture study instead of leaving with the Spirit once your scripture study is done. There is no greater tutor, no greater conversation partner when it comes to scripture study than the Holy Ghost. He can enlighten your mind. He can fill your soul with joy. That's revelation, the mind and the heart. He can open to your understanding the scripture's true meaning and intention. Now, I love the difference between those two. When I was in divinity school, we learned all kinds of interesting vocabulary. Every profession has its own jargon. And in, in terms of, of theological study or, or scripture study, there's a difference between what they call exegesis and what they call hermeneutic and exegesis is the study of the meaning of scripture what did it mean in its original context for example you're looking at linguistics and semantics and so on trying to make sense take the verses apart and put them back together that's exegesis it's exhilarating but the flip side is hermeneutic and your scriptural hermeneutic is your interpretive lens how am I supposed to interpret that scripture Now all of a sudden I'm trying to bring it into the canon as a whole and see what's the intention of this prophet, what are they trying to say, what does it mean in this context or in later contexts. And even though we don't tend to use those words in the church, I do remember one general conference talk when Elder Christofferson, very intelligent man, mentioned exegesis and hermeneutic and almost laughed at himself in using them because he made this little quick aside wishing the translators good luck with those two pieces of vocabulary. But when Joseph here is speaking of the Holy Ghost opening the scriptures to us so that we could see their meaning and intention in ways they'd never recognized before. Meaning is exegesis. Intention is hermeneutic. Meaning is what does the scripture mean? Intention is, well, what does the scripture mean to me? Exegesis is is what am I supposed to know? And hermeneutic is what I'm supposed to do. Or perhaps most importantly, exegesis, the meaning, is what did the prophet say? And hermeneutic, or intention, is what did the prophet intend? In other words, what did he intend by that? Or more importantly, what did the Spirit intend? What does the Spirit intend for me to do based on the scripture that I just read? More than anything, that makes scripture applicable, it makes it relevant. Remember Nephi's great phrase. And I did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. So many quote-unquote Bible scholars spend their lives living only in ancient days and never bring what they've learned there to their own day to change the way they live. They're stuck in meaning and never discover intention because intention requires the Holy Ghost. It's a matter of praying in your scripture study, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do with this? How should I change? What can I become? That's where scripture study becomes beautiful. But it does require the Holy Ghost's help. I would challenge each of you. And based on some of the comments I've been reading, many of you are doing this already. You describe what's happening in your life based on our study of the Doctrine and Covenants. You're describing changes in perspective and changes in behavior, uh, an excitement to understand and to put in practice the truths of God. As a teacher, that's the best news ever for me because it sounds like you're understanding not just meaning, which I think I can help you with, but understanding intention, which is something the Holy Ghost weaves into the soul enlightening your mind filling your soul with joy helping you know what's the purpose of what I'm reading do that more often and your scripture study will be life-changing I promise it was for Joseph things they never could attain to previously if you're understanding now things you never understood before, or if you're, you're attaining things in your scripture study that are new to you, then we're starting to do it better than we did before. The Holy Ghost is interacting with us. This is becoming a revelatory experience. And even better, if you're having experiences you never dreamed of, wow! that's when the Spirit opens up to, do you understand what this book could be doing for you? When your scripture study becomes what was previously unattainable, and unimaginable then the holy ghost is at work with you this sword quick and powerful two-edged dividing asunder joint and marrow spirit and soul it is cutting to the quick and it is teaching you truths in ways that you never could attain or imagine before now sadly it doesn't end there Because yes, we do have to come down from the mountaintop. We have to come home from the grove. We have to to come up from the Susquehanna. And what's typically facing us? Keep going in 74. We don't even get a new verse. It's all part of the same thing. This is life. The good and the bad all put together. In the meantime, we were forced to keep secret the circumstances of having received the priesthood and our having been baptized, owing to a spirit of persecution which had already manifested itself in the neighborhood. Light and darkness always seem to coincide, even in the same verse. Jesus himself is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. The same thing is happening in verse 74. So interesting that this verse ends by speaking of a spirit. Just as we spoke of a spirit in previous verses, But whereas that first spirit was enlightening the mind and filling the soul with joy, this spirit was sowing seeds of division and planting persecution everywhere it could. Which spirit are we in tune with? Which one are we seeking? He then ends in verse 75, speaking more of this persecution. We had been threatened with being mobbed from time to time, and this too by professors of religion and this doesn't have to be professors like, like the clergy or someone whose, whose profession it was to teach it, but rather someone who professes religion. They say to, that they're religious. They claim to be spiritual, but they certainly aren't acting like it. They are drawing near with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Now, thankfully for Joseph and for Oliver, they had a pretty good live-in bodyguard. Remember, they're in Harmony, Pennsylvania. They're living with Emma's family. And her dad isaac hale was well known in the vicinity as an incredible marksman so you don't want to go and mess with anybody under his roof since he can probably get you from a distance he says in verse 75 their intentions of mobbing us were only counteracted by the influence of my wife's father's family under divine providence i love that he combines the two remember we started today by talking about strength and means The strength is God's enabling grace, but the means are anyone out there that's willing to offer their help, their assistance. And even Isaac Hale, who was very against the marriage to begin with. Remember Joseph had to elope with Emma? Remember when he first described Emma as my wife, his daughter, and he kept that order straight? Well, Isaac Hale had had some change of heart. He never embraced the gospel, but he did come to embrace Joseph as a good man and a good son-in-law. I love that Joseph credits both his wife's father's family and divine providence. Speaking of his in-laws, they had become very friendly to me and they were opposed to mobs. So there's both the personal, they're starting to like me, and there's the principle. There's just something about freedom of religion that no matter who you are and what you believe, you deserve it. So we're opposed to mobocracy on principle. We're also connected to Joseph personally i I think we need to act more in terms of both of those ourselves when we see injustice when we recognize intolerance is there enough of of personal connection in us that will stand up for those around us and is there enough of principle within us that will stand up on those principles even if we don't know the people that we're trying to protect We can pray for peace and social justice all we want and trust in divine providence. But sometimes it takes a little bit more work on earth than just offering prayers. I love that both are being combined in verse 75. The verse ends that the Hales were willing that I should be allowed to continue the work of translation without interruption and therefore offered and promised us protection from all unlawful proceedings as far as in them lay. I hope similar words can be said of us. Are we doing all that is within our power to help the work of God progress, to provide protection for society's most vulnerable, to do all we can under divine providence to make a difference in the world? Now to close today, can we hear a few final words from Oliver Cowdery? We spent most of our time listening to Joseph Smith. But returning to that beautiful, eloquent footnote at the end, I just want Oliver's help in putting in perspective the kinds of things that we've discussed today. The power of the priesthood, the opening of the heavens, the influence of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Word of God. In the third to last paragraph, about halfway down, he says this, What joy! what wonder what amazement do we feel that do we feel that when we exercise the priesthood or receive its ordinances do we feel that when the spirit opens the scriptures to our understanding while the world was racked that's feeling too strongly about things and distracted that's feeling too little about things while millions were groping as the blind for the wall society searching for its limits not knowing the difference between right and wrong. And while all men were resting upon uncertainty as a general mass, how can I be forgiven? What does it take to be saved? Our eyes beheld, our ears heard. Speaking of John the Baptist, he said, His voice, though mild, pierced to the center. His words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. Where was room for doubt? Nowhere. Uncertainty had fled. Doubt had sunk. No more to rise. Sound like the end of section 6, which was given to Oliver Cowdery? Doubt not. Fear not. He was keeping that commandment. The experiences that he was having were wiping out fear and doubt. He was looking to God in every thought. Later he said, man may deceive his fellow men. Deception may follow deception, and the children of the wicked one may have power to seduce the foolish and untaught, till naught but fiction feeds the many, and the fruit of falsehood carries in its current the giddy to the grave. Beautiful alliteration there. But in the face of all of that, in the face of the kinds of persecution that we saw at the end of Joseph Smith history, how do you get through it? By cutting through it with the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. In Oliver's language, one touch with the finger of his love, yea, one ray of glory from the upper world, or one word from the mouth of the Savior, from the bosom of eternity, strikes it all into insignificance and blots it forever from the mind. Oliver was having those kinds of experiences, and so can we, John the Baptist may not appear to us but we can be cleansed through the priesthood authority that he restored. We may not be translating scripture but we can be studying it and have its meaning and intention open to us in ways that we never imagined possible before. As Oliver says in conclusion, I shall ever look upon this expression of the Savior's goodness with wonder and thanksgiving and I pray that we will too every time we repent of our sins or renew our baptismal covenants every time we live into the preparatory gospel that the Aaronic Priesthood presents every time we open our scriptures and come to hear and feel the voice of God mind opened soul filled with joy may we see in those expressions of the Savior's goodness and may we respond to them with wonder and Thanksgiving.